morning, church. Uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Philemon. The uh, book of Philemon is a very short book, as you know, uh, 25 verses. You find it right in front of the book of Hebrews. If you could find Hebrews, you could find Philemon. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 1,000, so it might be easy to find uh, using that Bible in front of you. Of course, that Bible is our gift to you. If you want a copy of God's Word, we take that Bible home and let that be... Um, a token of God's blessing to you from Hamilton Baptist Church. You know, perhaps, that I'm, I'm up here a little bit earlier than I typically am, and as uh, Pastor Josh already forewarned us, that doesn't mean it's an extra long sermon, so just have a sigh of relief there. Um, but this is, uh, what we are doing today is we are recognizing Freedom Sunday, and so it's going to be a bit unusual. You could see that in your uh, order of service. When I'm done preaching, where it's going to be a video, and then um, I'm delighted that uh, Danielle uh, Blyvin's going to come and speak to us on behalf of I the International Justice Mission, which is a Christian mission that is advocating and transforming the lives of those who find themselves in modern-day slavery. And I I'm thankful uh, that we can hear that testimony today. I trust that will be a blessing to us. What we're trying to do today, so what, what, what we're trying to accomplish, we're trying to, uh, at the very least, a raise our awareness of the issues of modern-day slavery. And I, I'll let you know, I'm going to leave much of that to the video and, and Danielle. I'm, I'm going to maybe try to set a theological foundation for us as we consider uh, God's word in Philemon. Um, but we want to raise our awareness of this issue and then to seek to be used by God to do something about it. And what, one thing we could do something about it is give. As Pastor Josh already mentioned, uh, this, is, this will be one of our three special offerings that we take up every year. Um, and we would invite you to give to this. We will not be taking up a, an offering for the persecuted church as we usually do in November. We're doing this offering instead. And so my prayer is that you would give generously to that. If you're not prepared to give today, we'll continue to take up this offering um, you, uh, in weeks to come. You just put that in the plate as it comes by. And you note that it's Freedom Sunday or slavery or IJM or something like that. Of course, we've been studying the book of Philemon, as you know. And uh, Philemon is the story of a runaway slave named Onesimus who moves to Rome, encounters the Apostle Paul. Paul leads him to faith in Jesus. And then Paul sends back the runaway slave to be reconciled to his master, uh, who's also a Christian, named Philemon. And so you got Onesimus, the slave. You got Philemon the master and then Paul the apostle. Those are the three characters that we'll need to pay attention to. If you were here last time I was preaching on Philemon, you remember I said Philemon is what I think a is a case study on uh, Christian reconciliation. I think it's a case study on what forgiveness looks like, reconciliation looks like within the Christian community. Of course, today we're focusing largely on justice. So the question we have to ask is, does this letter have anything to do with justice as well? And I think it does, as we'll see today, as we consider just a handful of verses from Philemon uh, chapter 8 through verse 14. Let me just say uh, one more uh, reality by way of introduction. I have found Philemon to be perhaps the most difficult book I've ever had to write sermons out of. And that will be uh, apparent to you in just a moment. And so I uh, just uh, be gracious to me. If you're visiting with us, they're normally better than this. And so we're just going to get ready and we'll find our way through it. It is God's word, I trust. And uh, even God can uh, use someone like me, I trust. So here we are, Philemon. Uh, I'll tell you what to do 25 verses, just for fun. Let's read uh, the whole book. What do you say? We don't get to do that often. 
and uh, I'm going to need some a an aid here, so just give me a second, and uh, here we go. Uh, hear now the word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, uh, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you in all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we're thankful for the word that instructs us, that guides us. I was reading in the psalmist this morning, Father, that the psalmist prays, Lord, lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. We ask, dear God, that that would be our heart, that we would delight to walk the path called obedience, that we would find our greatest joy in submitting to you into being conformed to the likeness of our Lord Jesus. And of course, in particular on this day, we know that our Lord Jesus, as he has shown us so clearly in the time he walked upon this earth, cares for the oppressed. And so shall his people. So shall those who have the audacity to claim to be the body of Christ here on earth. So help us. Help us even now as we consider your word. We pray that I might preach clearly, that Christ might be seen, and that your people might be changed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. It was in the year 1482, on the coast of Ghana, Africa, the castle was built. We know it as Elmina Castle. For hundreds of years, uh, this was the largest European building in Africa. Many of you have visited Elmina Castle on our many trips to Ghana, Africa, in support of our missionary partners there. And if you've been there, you, you, uh, you are uh, impacted by the, the stunning surrounding of the, the blue ocean and the sandy beaches and the swaying palm trees as they stand in contrast to the gruesome purpose of this castle. It was the first European slave trading post in sub-Sahara Africa, processing 30,000 African slaves every year until the, until the year 1814. Now, of course, we all know about the transatlantic slave trade and our country's participation in that. But there is, I, I would testify to you, a, a fundamental difference between learning about it in the classroom and actually walking through the dungeons in which these people were kept. They would keep them in long stone rooms with uh, low arched ceilings with a little slit at the end of one wall just to let in just a, a little daylight. The rooms were originally designed for 200 people to be housed, but routinely would keep 1,000. There, 1,000 uh, people would be jammed in this room. There would be no sanitation. There would be no, no, no bathroom there. There were no, no opportunities to leave and, and use the facilities. There, there was no ventilation there. It became a foul uh, place of breeding of, of malaria and yellow fever. Many would die there as the slaves were typically housed in that condition for about three months. And you walk through these dungeons, and it's rather impactful, but it, it gets even worse when you then come to the female dungeons. They did separate the men from the women, but then you begin to learn what the lustful soldiers did to these enslaved women in this compound. As if that wasn't bad enough, then you, you get to the higher levels of the castle where the military lived, and, and you begin to walk around and, and, and are amazed at these large, airy rooms and their verandas and their terraces that they, that they had of the... Uh, ocean views. And then finally, I think perhaps the worst part of the tour, if I could put it that way, is you, you walk into the church building. And uh, not unlike this sanctuary, there's pews there, and they have scripture that's been uh, painted upon the walls and has been there for hundreds of years. And you realize the church building is directly uh, uh, one floor above the female dungeons. And you sit in the pew there, they give you a moment of kind of quiet reflection. And you, you try to think, how is it that people who claim the name of Christ would gather in this building and praise Jesus for the redemption which he has bought for them while there's a thousand slaves literally beneath their feet? Sadly, this, this reality, though the transatlantic tra slave trade has ended and we praise God for it, slavery continues today. Some estimate that there are more slaves today than there has ever been in the world. It is an unseen issue to us, an issue I think that God would want to draw our attention to, as we will consider today. When we think about this history of, our, of, of, of this world, and in particular of our land, and it causes us trouble, especially in light of this verse here in the book of Philemon. Notice what Paul says about this slave here in verse 12. I am sending him back to you. That's somewhat stunning, isn't it? I mean, as part of us think, why in the world would Paul send a runaway slave back to his master? Right, we, we're all in favor of reconciliation, we like that, but this seems to be a bit extreme. Why not instead write, slavery's a sin, you don't get him back. I'm glad he ran away from you, you should never own people, 
what's wrong with you, and he's with me now, and I'm going to protect him to my last breath. Why not condemn slavery? Now, I will suggest, despite what some people I read argue, the Bible does explicitly condemn slavery that was similar to the 16th to the 18th century slavery around the Atlantic Ocean. And, and I would add, condemns slavery that's happening today. We know this from Exodus 21, in case you're interested, when I quote the word of God, anyone who kidnaps another and sells him as a slave must be put to death. So that's pretty clear to me. Okay? We also see in 1 Timothy 1 that Paul lists slave traders in the same category as those who kill their parents. Okay, so the Bible, that type of slavery, the idea of capturing someone, selling them as a slave, or treating them as a slave, is explicitly condemned in Scripture. But typically, that is not how slavery was practiced in the Roman world. Now, I, I, uh, just a few months ago, I preached a sermon on Colossians 3. If you remember, we dealt with slaves and masters and how they should interact with one another. I spent about 15, 20 minutes going over the differences between antebellum American slavery and Roman slavery. So you're, you're interested in a more uh, robust explanation of those differences. I refer you to that sermon. But I will just briefly mention three differences between American slavery or modern slavery, uh, which is happening worldwide, of course, and this Roman slavery. Number one, Roman slavery was not racial. American slavery was based entirely upon uh, white supremacy. It was based entirely upon the idea of racial superiority that Africans were considered to be subhuman. That's, that's, not a, that's not an opinion, that's just a fact, as you know. There's nothing about that in Roman slavery. Every race was enslaved in Rome, and every race owned slaves in Rome. The racial uh, reality of slavery was non-existent in Roman slavery. Number two, Roman slavery uh, was often voluntary. Now, there were occasions when people would go to war, and as spoils of war, they would take back slaves, which, of course, was not voluntary. But typically, Roman slaves actually sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debt or even to improve the quality of their life. Uh, third, uh, Roman slavery typically was not permanent. Most domestic slaves were freed by age 30. So when we, we're dealing with slavery in the New Testament, slavery in Paul's day, don't think in terms of this permanent forced subjugation of a certain race of people. That was not what was happening there. Of course, that raises the question, and this question was actually raised to me literally uh, two weeks ago when I preached Philemon by four different people. Was Roman slavery wrong? Was it wrong? Was this type of slavery I'm just describing, was that wrong? Was it evil? And I, I would suggest to you, and I have no problem suggesting to you, emphatically, yes, it was evil. I think owning other people is not godly. I, I, now, I may be wrong, but when we get to heaven, I don't think you're going to own anyone. Okay? I do not think there will be even, you know, nice benevolent slavery in heaven. Okay? I'm pretty sure there will be no slavery there whatsoever. And for those who think that this ancient slavery, though maybe more, more humane than our slavery or the slavery that's taking place today, wasn't that bad, I think Abraham Lincoln's uh, remarks might be appropriate. He said, whenever I hear someone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. <laughs> he said, what, 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 Pastor, it was voluntary. They did it to improve their lives. And that's true. There's also a time in uh, European history when we sent our eight-year-old boys to be chimney sweeps to improve our lives. And we sent our 11-year-old boys to mine in uh, hazardous mines uh, and terrible conditions to improve our lives. 
It might have been the best option available to them. That doesn't mean it's a good or moral system, right? It might be the less, a lesser evil than starving, but it, and a lesser evil is still evil. And I think this slavery was evil. In fact, when a slave uh, would sell themselves into slavery, they experienced what was called a civil death. They had no legal rights. They became a piece of property. They had no legal right to marry. You could not marry as a slave. You could uh, be executed at a whim by your uh, master. There was no legal authority to which you could appeal in any way. You had zero rights as a slave. You were just considered property. And for instance, uh, we might be interested to know in light of Philemon, a captured runaway slave could be flogged, could be branded, could be sold to work in the mines or the galleys, and we have historical evidence that sometimes they were crucified. Many of them were forced to wear an iron collar engraved with, with the name of their master, his address, and the command, catch me, for I have fled my master. And so I, I am confident that this is an evil system in which God's people should have nothing to do with. So the question then, is, to go back to the same question, I think, why doesn't the Bible condemn this kind of slavery if it's wrong? And I, I believe, though there is not a frontal assault on slavery, the Bible does sow the seeds of its demise. I believe it, it teaches us, the, the, the ethic that we see in the New Testament teaches us to undermine this system. The Bible transforms lives. It tells us to love one another as ourselves. I think that rules out slavery. It tells us to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think that rules out slavery. I think the New Testament ethic destroys it. And I think as people's lives begin to transform, the society begins to change, the, 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 uh, the, the injustice in that land, slavery in particular, will begin to wane and go away. I think the Bible sows the seeds to the end of slavery. I think the book of Philemon is one of those seeds. In fact, one commentator I read, I, he's helpful. I think he's a little too bold. But he said of the book of Philemon, this little letter is a seed, is a seed that finally split the rock of slavery. Um, and I think it certainly uh, leads us in that direction. In fact, Christians in the 18th century, when they begin to argue for the abolition of slavery, would actually appeal to the book of Philemon. There was a campaign tool that they had uh, in the early 18th century. They made a medallion. Uh, it was made by a, a potter named Josiah Wedgwood. And uh, I think we have a picture of it right there. Um, this would be a medallion that people would wear. It actually went vi uh, viral in, in that day. Everyone had one of these if you're an abolitionist. You see there's a, a, a kneeling slave up there pleading, and they see that little phrase there that says, am I not a man and a brother? Well, the, the, the phraseology in part is taken from Philemon verse 16, when Paul says, have him back, uh, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. And so even this book was used uh, in this terrible time in uh, Western history to promote the end of slavery. And I, my prayer is that Philemon would have a likewise influence on us. That we, as we study this book, we would begin to understand to a greater degree what does interpersonal forgiveness look like? What does working for the cause of justice look like? And so before we, we dive in, um, just a word to uh, any non-Christian you might be here today. Uh, we're, we're delighted to have non-Christians here. You're always welcome to worship among us or, or be with us while we're worshiping, I should say. Um, my question for you if you're a non-Christian is, uh, well, I have two questions, to be honest. Uh, do you think slavery is wrong? I, I, I'm pretty sure I, I know the answer to that question. Um, my follow-up question would be, why? Why would you think slavery is wrong? As a, as a non-theist, a, a non-Christian. I appreciate the honesty of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., um, who was a Supreme Court justice from the years 1902 to 1932. Um, and not just uh, sitting on the highest court in our country, he was a, he was a leading thinker for secularists in that day, or non-theists. Um, 
And uh, he, what I appreciate about him is he was honest. He would say, there is no reason for attributing to a man a significant difference from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Okay? Sounds like a fun guy, right? He says, this world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill it if I get the chance. And the only reason is because it is incongruous to the world I want. The world where we all are trying to make according to our own power, end quote. Now, I appreciate the honesty there. It's like, if this world is an accident, right? If there is no God who made us, there is no such thing as purpose. There is no such thing as value. And he is right. A human is not worth anything more than a baboon or a grain of sand. There is no good or bad. There is no right or wrong. Right? right and wrong means there's a standard. A standard means there's a design. A design means there is a designer. And I would suggest to you, if you deny the existence of God, you have absolutely no ground to say that slavery is bad. You might say, I prefer a world without slavery, but that's a preference. You have no ground to say it is evil. But of course, you know in your heart that it is. And why do you know that? It is because you are made in the very image of God. He has put his imprint upon you. And though your, your worldview would say there is no, no such thing as value, no such thing as purpose, no such thing as good and evil, you know that not to be true. You feel it in the very core of who you are. Right? If God does not exist, I should say, slavery can't be wrong because there is no wrong. Right? But we know slavery is wrong. Slavery is wrong only because they're one who gives us meaning in life. I believe his name is Jesus. And I pray that you might meet him today. And so let's consider Paul's call for justice here. Justice for a runaway slave. I think he's going to ask his owner, Philemon, to do the right thing. In particular, I think he's going to ask him to free him, give him his liberation. What makes this challenging is that this slave has wronged this owner. And so we see this confluence here in this letter of both of the cause of justice and the cause of forgiveness. And I'm going to try to appeal to both even as we work our way through this. So we see, first of all, justice arises from the heart. Four points about Paul's call to justice. Justice arises from the heart. Note verse 8. We read, According, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. In other words, Paul says, I can rely upon my apostolic authority and order you to do the right thing, but I won't. Paul will not flex his apostolic muscles in this case. Not because he's afraid, right? He says, no, I, I'm bold enough to do this. I don't know, parents, that you ever, you ever like me, you ever yell down in the basement and say, don't make me come down there. You ever do that? You're not going to like it when I do. So it's not that you're afraid to come down there, right? right? You're, fear, you're bold enough to do it. Right? Paul says, I could order you to do this, but there's a better way. I'd rather you want to do the right thing. I'd rather you do it out of love, not duty. For he says in verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer, uh, I, I, I prefer to appeal to you. So he's going to avoid the use of his authority. Instead, Paul's going to be gentle with him and, and be wise with him. When we want someone to do the right thing, even if we have authority, rarely, I think, is it, is it best to actually use that authority. Right? You don't want your children to just give grudging obedience to your parental authority. You want them to agree with you. Right? And, and the same is true with us and our Lord. I mean, why do you obey God? Do you obey God because he's God and he tells you what to do and you just... I mean, that's, I should obey God? Or do you obey God because you love him and you delight in him? And above all things, you want to please him. So he says, says Philemon, I could order you to release Anisimus, but your heart will still be full of resentment. 
You wouldn't actually want justice. You would just be doing it out of duty. That's a half victory. I, I, I want freedom. I want to see reconciliation. Philemon, I want you to want to do what is right. I, I think this is true when it comes in particular to reconciliation and justice in the world as well. I think the heart is where our ba the battles rage. I think we see this illustrated in the life of James Smith, who was a 18th century Christian slave in Richmond. And each night after his arduous labor out in the fields, he would actually preach to his fellow slaves. Uh, his master hated that. And so he had him whipped a number of times for preaching the gospel. But James Smith would refuse to stop preaching, stop worshiping Jesus with his fellow slaves. So eventually he sold him. Couldn't get him under control. Sold him, which separated him from his wife Fanny and his two children. He's bought by a, a, a Georgia cotton grower and so moved from Richmond down to Georgia. And uh, on the first day... Uh, in order to dissuade his, his preaching, uh, the owner, his new owner, had the overseer uh, whip him with a hundred lashes. A hundred times for the whip. And as James Smith was being lashed, he began to pray for the soul of the man holding the whip. Eventually, the, the overseer never made it to a hundred. He couldn't continue while this man was praying for him. He actually got down on his knees and begged this bleeding slave for his forgiveness. And even went to the point where he promised him not to recapture him if he escaped. Well, Smith promptly did. He fled back to Virginia and found that his wife and his children had also been sold and knew not where they were. His biographer says 22 years of jailings, beatings, searchings, and prayings until he found them now living in Canada. What a story that shows us the power of Christ in our life, the, the power that forgiveness brings about, how it changes hearts, how it, how it leads one to actually want to do what is right, as it led this overseer to do what was just. This is how Christianity changed the world. It wasn't through Christians' power that the world was changed. It wasn't through our authority that the world was changed. It wasn't by commands. It wasn't by passing laws. Though I think laws are good, do not misunderstand me, they have their place. We ought to pass laws for the cause of justice. As I mentioned a number of weeks ago, I give thanks to God for the law that was recently passed in Texas, banning abortion once a heartbeat is detected. I think we ought to do things like that, so don't hear me say otherwise, but I think it is far better when hearts are changed, right? We want Christ to write the law upon our hearts, change who we are, and God promises to do that in Christ. This is what Paul wants for this man. He wants to take out that old heart and give him a new heart and give him this great desire as he appeals to him from his heart. In fact, his appeal continues there in verse 9, doesn't it? He says, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I like that, don't you? Uh, won't you do something for this old man? Right, do something nice. I'm an old man. I don't know if you ever try that. Um, but uh, here Paul is appealing. He says, you know, um, don't, don't you want to do this for me? Um, I've lived a long time. He's 60 years old, by the way. That may be discouraging to some of you uh, to think that Paul thinks that's an old man. Um, but I, I would say that, that Paul's 60 years might look different than your 60 years. He had a little more wear on the tires, I think, uh, than, Paul, than you perhaps did. Uh, I understand 60 is the new 30 and all that, so don't, we don't need to worry about that. But Paul says, hey, do something for, for an old man and for a prisoner, he says. I'm in prison. In other words, Philemon, you're not the only one being asked to do hard things. And he will be asked to do a hard thing. We'll explore that next time. He says, I'm willing to wear the chains for the gospel. You can forgive and free your slave, can't you? Right? I, I would not ask you to make a bigger sacrifice than the one I'm willing to give. And you see, justice, I think, best arises from the heart, but it's empowered by empathy or love, we might say. 
Look what he says there in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. This, by the way, is the first time Onesimus is mentioned by name. This uh, letter is 335 words. We're 145 words into it, and he finally actually brings up the issue. Uh, Onesimus. And he even waits to the end of the sentence. My, my translation doesn't keep the same word order. Maybe yours does. I, I like how one translation put it here in verse 10. I'm appealing to you for my child. Yes, I've become a father, though I've been in prison, and the child's name is Onesimus. Right? I mean, you could almost hear the church's, like, gasp of, uh, you know, as, you know, and my child is, you know, wait for it, here it comes. It's Onesimus, the runaway slave. This is one of the problems that, that we have since we are familiar with the Bible, right? We, we know how it's going to end. I remember when I was 17 years old and first come to Christ, I read the Bible cover to cover in about three or four months. And I, I, I remember just constantly thinking, wow, wow, I can't believe that. David took off the guy's head. I was blown away, right? I read the book of Esther, and I just couldn't imagine all these things coming together. Or I read Ezekiel, and I couldn't stop blushing. I mean, it was, I can't believe this is in the Bible. I read Mark, and I think, wait a second. I just read this in Matthew. What's going on, right? I had no idea what any of this was. It was also, it was amazing. I had no idea what a gospel was. I was just reading along. I was just reading the next book. It's a problem. They must have been stunned to hear this. Paul says, listen, I want you to know I've become a dad. I'm a daddy, even though I'm in prison. Really, your dad? Yeah. Where's your son? Oh, it's your runaway slave. I found him. And led him to Christ. It's just stunning to me. Uh, uh, of course, Onesimus, we know Onesimus is actually delivering the letter. We saw that in the end of Colossians. Remember that? So Colossians and Philemon are uh, parallel books or sister books. And so they both come together, both delivered by the same two men, Tychicus and Onesimus. They come. I don't know if Onesimus is there handing to him. He may be hiding out in the barn, you know, saying, Tychicus, you go in, tell me how it goes, and then, then come get me. I don't know what's going on, but here he is. He brings it and says, listen, this runaway slave has been led to Jesus. He's become my son. Somehow he encountered Paul, and you can imagine Paul speaking to him and said, you know, Onesimus, you think your problems with the chains you used to wear. You used to wear chains. It may not be to your master, but it is to sin. You think your problem is you're estranged from your master? No, your problem is you're estranged from the, the one true God who made you. I was, I was estranged too. I hated him. And one day he, he chased me down. One day he showed himself to me. One day he came looking for me. And I understood who Jesus was and what Jesus had done on the cross, how he paid for my sin, and, 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 and how he rose from the dead three days later in order to show that God had received that pay, payment and that there is a way of, of life even through death. And he forgave me. And Onesimus, he can forgive you too. Just as you can forgive any one of you here who will put your faith in Jesus Christ. And he, he believed. He trusted in Jesus. Runaways in this day were the most vulnerable people. They're, there was this harsh law of recapturing them. The, the economic opportunities were almost non-existent. Often they would turn to crime. It's not hard to think of Onesimus as scared and lonely there in the big city of Rome. And just running and running. And there in the biggest city on planet Earth, God chases him down. What did the psalmist say? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I to go to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. God chased him down, just like he did to you, didn't he, Christian, and to me. I wonder if this man could have written what that, what, what that repentant slave trader once wrote. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You see, Paul, I think, is appealing to Philemon's empathy here, so they're not just sending you your slave. 
I'm sending you my son. I'm his daddy. He's my boy. In fact, look at the heartwarming language he uses in verse 12. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. That's kind of stunning, isn't it? The great apostle Paul and the thieving runaway slave. He's my very heart, he wrote. I think if we were to work for the cause of justice, we would do well to see people the way God sees them. Well, thirdly, we see justice, I think, ultimately should seek conversion. Certainly forgiveness is based upon it. Notice what he says here in verse 11, this little parenthetical comment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Some of you, I trust, are aware that Paul is using a pun here. Onesimus, the name Onesimus means useful, useful. And so this would be a name you would give to a slave in hopes that they would actually live up to it. For this man, evidently, it was one of those ironic names, right? Because he was useless. Useful was useless. But Paul says no more, right? Uh, uh, Your useless slave has become useful. In fact, the man I'm sending back to you is, is not the same man that left. It's not the same guy who stole from you and ran. He's a new man. And so, yes, I want you to forgive him because, in some sense, he's not the man who wronged you. This is what Jesus does. He transforms us. He takes broken lives and useless lives and transforms those lives. Maybe you know that personally. Maybe there was a time in your life when you were giving yourself to reckless living or gladly gave yourself to wickedness and immorality. And maybe you delighted in your rebellion against God. And and maybe you did so for years. Maybe you even did so for decades. And one day, Jesus walked into your life almost as if it were out of nowhere. And he said to you, did he not, Christian? I want to give you a new life. Would you like to start over? Would you like to be transformed? Would you like to leave the darkness and come into the light? What is it that you said? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, I I would like that very much. And that gracious God extended his nail-pierced hand, and you grabbed a hold of that hand, and you walked out of that weary place of despair and walked through that door called grace and into that garden of love and light and righteousness. And your life was transformed. You became new. I became new. I wonder, and maybe there's some here that he would, he was calling you now. Would you like to leave this old life? Would you like to walk away from dishonesty and wickedness? I wonder if some of you can hear him calling even you. See that outstretched hand. I've come to make you new. I'll make you a blessing. I'll make you useful. Do you ever feel useless? I wonder, uh, teenagers in particular, those of you who are here, you ever think you're good for nothing? You ever hear that? Someone ever say that to you? You're not good for anything? You ever think, what's the point? Am I really making an impact? Do people really love me? I want you to see what God does with people. He takes those that the world says is useless, and he says, to me, you're useful. He takes fugitives and makes them a friend. He takes thieves and makes them an heir. He takes sinners and makes them a son. To be a Christian, therefore, is not to attend church or keep a list of rules. It's to be transformed fundamentally who we are, to be made, uh, uh, um, uh, though not perfect, to be made new. And that newness is not simply how just God relates to us, but it's how we are relate to one another. And so the gospel, what it does, it changes how we, how we interact with each other. It, it, it exalts all humans to the same level or lowers them down to the same level you might. It certainly exalts the slave and humbles the proud and puts them on the same level there at the foot of the cross. 
The gospel makes us sit down together as brothers and sisters, where there is neither Jew nor Greek or black nor white or, or slave nor free. For one, we're all one in Christ, for Christ is all and in all. This is what Paul's saying here in verse 16, as we'll get to next time, God willing. I want you to have him. Don't you understand? No longer as a slave. Don't think of him as a slave, but he is your brother. Well, should we not do the same? Especially when it comes to interpersonal forgiveness within the church, he is my brother. She is my sister. We'll not bear this against them any longer. Well, even as we consider slavery in our day, I, I do note that this conversion ultimately is the goal of justice, right? Our hope is not simply to free slaves. Our hope is not simply to provide for the rehabilitation, though we should do that. It's not going far enough. We should support ministries that actually seeks to bring them to Christ. Jesus, when he came, he says, I brought the year of Jubilee. I brought freedom. I brought to proclaim liberty to the captives, true, ultimate liberty. So we can't stop in freeing them from their earthly bondage, though we should. We need to help them remove the chains of sin and judgment. Well, lastly, let me say, justice comes by sacrifice. You see there in verse 13, Paul say, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Right? Paul really wanted to keep Onesimus, not simply because he loved him like a father, but because he was a great help to him. So prisons in our day are not nice places to be, but prisons in Paul's days Paul's day were far worse. Because the prison did not clothe you, and the prison did not feed you. In order to have clothing and food, someone would have to bring that to you. Someone would have to bear the shame of coming to the prison, associating with you, in order to clothe you and feed you. Otherwise, you would not survive in prison. This seems to be what Onesimus is doing. He is serving me, Paul said. You know, I, I, um, Onesimus is caring for Paul. In fact, Paul says in this letter, he says, Philemon, you would serve me like this if you were here, wouldn't you? Right? He's serving me on your behalf during my imprisonment. Right? If you were here, you're not. You're 1,300 miles away. But if you were here, you would actually take care of me this way. Well, you see, your slave is, is doing what you wanted to do but can't do. He is a huge blessing to me. But I'm going to sacrifice that in order to see that the right thing is done. I will send him, even though... I get this incredible service from him. In fact, he continues in verse 14. He says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. I'm thankful for him. I, 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 I want him, but I'm going to send him because I don't want to keep him without your consent. I don't want to force this on you. I want this to be your decision. And you see Paul's great sacrifice here. But of course, he's not alone in the one sacrificing. Onesimus is risking quite a, quite a great deal to do this. He's risking his freedom, isn't he, to go back to his master after running from him and stealing from him. I mean, he's risking even his life. I kind of wonder why Onesimus would even agree to do this. I mean, could you imagine him there living with Paul in Rome? And Paul is like a father to him. And Maybe he's 20 years old, Paul's 60 years old, he's like a father he's never had, and he's loving him and guiding him and teaching him. This, this man was a slave, and, and then he became a fugitive, and, and now he's finally found a home. I'm home. This clearly is where God wanted me to be. And one day Paul says to him, hey Onesimus, I need you to do something for me. And he says, oh, anything, Father. What would it be? 
He says, well, I have a letter I need you to deliver. Okay, where to? Well, it's a friend of mine named Philemon. I said, oh, that's interesting. My former master, his name is Philemon. Yeah, that's the one. That's where you're going. I, I mean, I really hope that heaven is like video recording these things so I, we can actually get there and it's, I want to see, or fight on this, miss, when you get to heaven. What was it like when Paul said, I need you to go back to your master? And would you go? Philemon did. I mean, do you, it makes you wonder, why, why would he do that? He's already ran away from one. Why not do it again? In fact, as I was studying this book, I, I, in the back of my mind, I kept hearing the echoes of the, the story of the prodigal son. They're, they're similar in some ways. You've got two sinners, right, returning home, hoping to find a gracious reception. But the difference is, here's the fundamental difference. The prodigal son hit rock bottom and realized he had nowhere to go but up. And so in order to better his situation, he had to return. Onesimus has finally reached the top after being in rock bottom his whole life. Now he's made it all the way to the top. And to go home is to risk it all. Why would he return? Well, I wonder if it's simply because forgiveness Justice is worth the risk. Perhaps he learned it from another who also had the love of his father and also had a home he enjoyed. And that father, too, asked his son to go away from him, not only to risk everything, but actually to give up everything, that there might be forgiveness on earth and justice as well. Right? He sent that his son, namely Jesus, in order to save people like Onesimus and people like you. And I wonder if Onesimus is so overwhelmed by that love in which he has received in Christ that when he's asked to do something similar to what Christ has done for him, something risky for the cause of Christ, he says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll go. I'll risk it all. Because forgiveness is worth it. Because justice is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. So Onesimus sacrifices, Paul's sacrificing here for the cause of this justice, and I think perhaps you and I should do no less. So as I conclude this morning, I, I just leave you with this question. Have you ever sacrificed for the cause of justice? Like, when you think of, like, in promoting justice, here are the sacrifices I've made. One way you might is through giving to help ministries like IJM, International Justice Missions. You might get involved. I know Danielle's going to be at her table after the service in the foyer. Um, anyone interested in that ministry might speak to her, or maybe just interceding. Maybe, maybe it's not even the slavery issue. Maybe it's caring for the orphan. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, uh, working in foster care or adopting a child. Maybe it's, it's supporting West Africa Mercy Ministry, our, our mission partner dealing with dis disabled orphans in Ghana, Africa. Maybe it's here locally helping the poor with Tree of Life, or maybe it's, maybe it's by helping Afghani ref refugees through the North American Mission Board. Sometimes, I don't know if, if you ever experienced this, that the evil around us it kind of overwhelms us. You ever feel that way? It just kind of paralyzed, like, where, where do I begin? I mean, what can I possibly do? Uh, Allegra gets this email every Wednesday. It's uh, Wednesday's Waiting Child. And it's, uh, it's, uh, every Wednesday, it's a new orphan in Virginia who wants a mom and a dad. Just a bio. Hi, my name's this week. It was a girl named Isabel, 10-year-old. Hi, my name's Isabel. That's a little bit about me. I really would like a mom and a dad. <laughs> I really like brothers and and it's a new child in Virginia every Wednesday. One, 
after another. And it's just overwhelming. If you ever feel overwhelmed, I was helped by this quote that I read this week. When overwhelmed by the totality of injustice, the church can easily disregard as puny and ineffective the cup of water, the loaf of bread, the family prayer, the covey of children listening to a Bible study story on Sunday morning. In other words, maybe the start is just start somewhere small. Maybe on Wednesdays, your family gathers and prays for five minutes or orphans in Ghana. I don't know. Maybe just start somewhere. Maybe start meeting just one very simple need right in front of you. Is it not stunning that when Jesus is dying on the cross to pay for sin, he is bearing the wrath of God upon himself. He is in utter agony. He has is, he is taken away the sins of the world that all who would trust in him might be forgiven from him. And at the same time, at that exact time, he looks down and he sees a widow there standing in front of him, his mother. And he says, John, will you take her home and care for her? I mean, the same, I could bear the wrath of God and I'm going to meet this very specific need in front of me. I think we could do the same, can't we? Meet the needs that God brings us, makes us aware of it. And so why does Paul not rage against slavery? Well, maybe he actually did. Not by standing against the might of Rome and calling for a new socioeconomic order, but standing up on behalf of just one man named Onesimus when he needed it. I will tell you, you and I will not end in justice. And justice will be here until Christ returns. But we can do justice. After all, what, what did the prophet tell us? He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What is it? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Our Father, I pray that we would be obedient to the call of Scripture. That, Father, we would indeed be motivated not out of guilt or duty, but from the depths of our heart as transformed men and women who seek to image forth Christ. Will you help us to understand how we as your people could stand up for the oppressed and do the work that you have called us to do upon this earth? That we indeed would do justice. That we would love mercy and that we would walk humbly with you all our days. For we ask it in Christ's name.